Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Mark Hughes, and I'm happy to join everybody else in visiting you here. Uh, in recent weeks, we've been obsessed with Russia's taking the Crimea and pressuring Ukraine to accept its dominance. <clears throat> our obsession has taken our minds off a continuing long-range worry whether whether China is close to replacing the U.S. as the world's largest economic power <coughs> and militarily. China <coughs> has openly declared its dominance over the South China Sea, which poses a challenge to America's historic place in the seas of Asia. The combination of an economic superpower plus growing military threat kind of unsettles the mind. To help settle our minds is one of the country's top experts in U.S. foreign policy and defense issues, Dr. Michael O'Hanlon. He earned his bachelor's degree, two master's degrees, and Ph.D. at Princeton. And then he served in the Peace Corps in the Congo for, uh, in the 1980s. He heads research on the Middle East at the Brookings Institute and is an adjunct professor at the School of Foreign and Domestic Affairs at Columbia University. Incidentally, he has written incisive articles on Afghanistan with Stephen Biddle. You, of course, remember Steve, who spoke here just two weeks ago. Dr. O'Hanlon's analysis of military aspects of, of foreign policy are enriched by his on-the-spot presence in critical situations. For example, in Afghanistan, he accompanied the Marine Commandant on his helicopter trips to active combat locations. Last fall, he was in Changsha at a Chinese military academy discussing U.S.-China points of friction. His analyses have been published in the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post and in the foreign policy journals of top universities. He has been interviewed in all the major television networks. In summary, from foreign policy to U.S. defense strategy and budget, and from military technology to Asian security issues, Michael O'Hanlon is Washington's one-stop one source for the best and latest analysis. He and his wife have two daughters, who, and they live in Bethesda, Maryland. And how fortunate we are to have him today. Let's give him a good Dallas welcome. No, that's extraordinary. Thank you all uh, very much for the welcome. And um, I'm tempted to say we, we folks from Washington and Dallas understand each other well because we both come from former football capitals. Uh, but, 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 but let's hope we all put those others back in their place, even if we still will have to compete ultimately against each other. Uh, but let's get back to that world. I also want to say a couple of weeks ago I was up in Canada. It was actually the end of February, giving a, a talk as part of a panel 
during the very end of the Olympics. And it was a big defense symposium, and there were mostly a lot of all retired Canadian uh, soldiers, basically, at this conference. And we started the panel as the U.S.-Canada hockey game entered the third period. <coughs> By the way, the story ends badly, uh, as, as you can probably guess. But, the only, but, but somebody had it a lot worse, because my friend had given the uh, presentation during the panel the day before. They began when the U.S. women's team was ahead 2-0 in the third period to Canada, and ultimately lost 3-2 in the course of their panel discussion. And so uh, at least I knew that we were behind as we began. But the funny thing was, and this, by the way, is permission for you all to check the scores in the Masters if that's what you do during my talk, because I've already seen far worse. Because what happened during this panel, I was the fourth speaker. And uh, the panel began just as the third period was beginning. By the time it got over to me, I, I gave this uh, little opening about how I felt like I was an honorary Canadian because I grew up just across the border, and I had gone with the Canadians to Kandahar and Kabul and Afghanistan on my first visit to Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I was a big fan of all they were doing and had done in Afghanistan and so on. And so no matter who won the hockey game, I was going to claim victory. At which point, 500 of these old fogies, uh, you know, these old Canadian guys stand up and start taunting me. It's like, the game's over. We just won. Yankee, go home. So, so, so I was trying to be nice. <laughs> and uh, so Terry just decided to begin with the common denominator of our football teams and the bad luck there instead. But, um, but let me get to China. Speaking of, um, speaking of superpowers and, and rising and established and uh, potentially declining powers. I don't think the United States is declining. Jim Steinberg and I decided to write this book on the U.S.-China strategic relationship, which is just coming out now, um, and is the basis for my talk today, after he was Deputy Secretary of State. He, he was Hillary's deputy for the first two and a half years of the Obama administration. And Jim so, was part of the early thinking on the so-called rebalance to Asia, or the pivot, as some people prefer, prefer to call it, and the thinking that we had to reinforce in some sense, our position in the Asia-Pacific uh, as a result of much of what was happening there, as a result of China's rise, as a result of our uh, short-term to medium-term distractions with the problems of the Middle East, which, however inevitable, however necessary, nonetheless, in some people's eyes, had taken us a little bit away from the world's most dynamic, growing center of uh, economic and military activity in the Asia-Pacific. But Jim came away from that experience very worried. And that's the starting point that I want to use for our conversation today. Our book was an effort to try to say what to do about the U.S.-China relationship so that it does not become an all-out rivalry, arms race, or even develop the potential for conflict. And it's sort of striking that Jim had that impression coming out of his work in the Obama administration because he had been working for many years and still does uh, now that he's the dean of the Maxwell School at Syracuse, uh, working on U.S.-China uh, dialogue and understanding. But uh, as you all know, China's been rising extraordinarily fast and feeling a lot more assertive, in, mostly in these disputed islands and territories of the East China Sea and South China Sea. We'll come back to that in a minute. But Jim's worry was not just what the Chinese were doing, but also how Chinese strategic culture would interact with American strategic culture. And he wasn't, and I wasn't, and we're not, in the book, critiquing American culture, American political and strategic thinking. Uh, and nor are we trying to begin with a big criticism of the Chinese, because the book is an effort to persuade both countries that they need to realize they have a problem and work on it together. Because here's the thing. The book is called Strategic Reassurance and Resolve. 
And what we mean by that is both countries have very strong convictions about their national interests, about their territorial uh, and allied kind of responsibilities in the Western Pacific. Jim and I believe very strongly the U.S. should stand by Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Taiwan, and our interests in open and free navigation. We're not suggesting for a second any kind of retrenchment from those longstanding American uh, priorities. And we also recognize the Chinese have a very strong sense of national resolve and resoluteness themselves because they feel that for a long time they got sort of trodden over by the rest of the world, and they don't want to do that again. They don't want to experience that again. So they're going to keep rising, and they're going to assert themselves. And we're going to stay powerful, and we're going to assert ourselves. And that's almost inevitable, and in many ways, at least from an American point of view, desirable. But it's also dangerous. And so we began the book not with the perspective of sort of two other camps on the U.S.-China relationship. There's a camp that basically says, and forgive me if I'm building up a straw man or caricaturing, but I think it's not totally unfair to say, there's a camp that believes we could never be so stupid as to fight each other. And, of course, it's 2014, 100 years ago, people felt often the same way about how the European powers couldn't be so dumb as to fight each other uh, either because of their economic interdependence and so forth. But what we now know 100 years later that the powers that later caused World War I, what they did not know or did not have, first of all, we realize it is really possible that you could have a war even when you don't think it should be possible, <laughs> even when you don't think it should be uh, appropriate. Also, we have on top of that nuclear weapons. We have the memories of the two world wars. We have a lot of human-to-human -human exchange. We have the modern communications grid. We have modern kind of economic uh, ch supply chains that don't just involve trade of finished goods, but collaboration all along the way. So how could these two countries ever fight? And plus, the Chinese are smart enough to know that as much as they want a little bit of assertiveness, uh, they want to be a little bit assertive vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese and the Koreans and the Filipinos, the international system that we really built after World War II works extremely well for them because they have done something that no country has ever done in history, the number of people they've brought out of poverty, the amount of wealth they've created in a short period of time. So this argument basically says, of course there won't be a war, of course there won't even be a serious risk of war, because peace is overdetermined by nuclear deterrence, economic interdependence, the memories of the world wars, etc. That's one school of thought. Jim and I are not in that school. Then there's another school of thought that says, of course we're going to fight. A rising power always challenges an established power historically, and the only times it hasn't happened in world history are basically, you know, the handoff from the British to the Americans, and that was largely because we were of one culture, one language, and at that time we didn't have any particular common or any particular uh, reasons to fight, and we did have some looming common enemies, and so that was almost an historical aberration, the way the United States came into its own. And by the way, it didn't really happen until we had the world wars that required us to fully beef up our military and turn our industrial capability into uh, defense goods. And so maybe that's the exception that proves the rule also because we had to go through two world wars to really fully coordinate the United States as the superpower and, you know, to acknowledge that Britain no longer was. So this school of thought says when a rising power appears on the scene, it's always going to try to assert itself. The established power is always going to try to hold on to what it's got, so to speak, and war is likely. And don't delude yourself to thinking that human beings have progressed 
They're still fundamentally competitive, greedy, and arrogant. And yes, we build up institutions to try to restrain ourselves, but in the end, we're still human beings. And you know this school of thought. This is sort of the realist school of thought in international relations theory, although it has various variants. Uh, but nonetheless, this basically is the school that says, don't, don't pretend that we've gotten nicer as a species just because we're richer. Um, it's only been a few decades since the World Wars, which proved that even as humanity advanced or appeared to advance, there was always the potential to lapse back. That's the other school of thought. Jim and I are also not a member of that school of thought. We are, you might put us in the, uh, in the school of thought that's just worried. Because, because we could see, we, we see the potential for school one, but we see the plausibility of school two. And so the question is, what do you do about it? What do you do about this when you've got this uh, potential problem? Let me dramatize the problem for you a little bit more, and then I want to work through three uh, concepts on how you might try to address this. And then the third is ours. So um, the first two are ones I don't subscribe to. But just to dramatize the, the basic argument, of why we should be worried, but also not fatalistic. But here's why we should be worried. If you look at Chinese history, and I know a lot of people here have studied it, and many of you probably know it much better than I do. I don't claim to be a China expert in terms of its politics or history. But if you look at Chinese history, they were way ahead of the West for many centuries, and it really through medieval times. Uh, the term that we use to describe where Europe was in the early centuries of the uh, second millennium, uh, after Christ, but of course for the Chinese that was still the flowering and blossoming of their civilization and they were way, way ahead of us in technology, uh, way ahead of us in the development of their cities, in industry, and then they began to have a bit of a seafaring capability. Uh, they were probably behind us in their brutality, at least um, at least by their own account. They, they claimed that the Confucian model led them to want to exert some leverage over their neighbors not so much by going and slaughtering them or demanding uh, obedience, but trying to create this sense of a tributary state where anybody lucky enough to be positioned geographically close to China by the goodwill of God should recognize uh, their good fortune and, you know, kowtow appropriately towards China. But as long as that basic understanding was accepted, then there was no need for a lot of conquest. Now, obviously, China didn't get to be a huge country without any wars of conquest in the early millennia. But by this period of time, at least their national narrative is, we were basically a peaceful people, certainly much more peaceful than you brutal uh, Christians from across the way who went out and colonized half the world and fought each other and so forth. So that's part of the, the Chinese narrative. But then in about the 15th century in the Ming Dynasty, the Chinese said, you know what, we've had enough of hanging out with the rest of the world. We're pretty comfortable with ourselves. We like living here in this Chinese paradise. And they started burning their fleet, destroyed their own navy. And they even pulled back some of their coastal villages by forcible relocation because they didn't want their citizens tempted to go out to sea or to uh, be victim to some of the pirates who would come by. They just wanted to pull inward. And they lived that way for centuries. And then in the 19th century, um, and I say this in a very loose sense, obviously, but we, the broader Western world, knocked on their door and said, we're coming in whether you like it or not. And so starting in 1839, you had uh, the various open-door policies, the opium wars, the West forcing its way into China, demanding trading relationships and other such things. And then that was bad enough, but it was all capped off in this century of humiliation, as the Chinese think of it, by the Japanese invasion and occupation and brutality. 
And so that is the Chinese century of humiliation, as they describe it. Kissinger does a great job, by the way, describing this in his book on China, uh, which I would recommend to anybody. I'm not always... I'm not always capable of getting through all 1,500 pages of a typical Kissinger book, I have to admit. But this one is 500 nice pages, big font, and wonderfully done. You wonder how the guy could be so smart on China, of all things. We all know what he's done in his career on China, but he actually goes into the history and does it beautifully. I recommend the book. But um, China's basically resolved after going through that 100 years, and then after, after pulling themselves up by their bootstraps through the whole period of communism and Mao and the you know, cultural revolution and all the other things that were uh, really terrible atrocities inflicted by Chinese on each other, that they are finally in a position not to have to do any of that again. No more century of humiliation. No more leaving themselves vulnerable to lesser states that aren't wise enough to just leave the Chinese alone and properly kowtow. The Chinese are not going back to the way they acted in the second millennium, the second half of the second millennium. I think it's pretty clear. They don't quite know what they want to do with this new power, but they're not going back to passivity and vulnerability. I think that's pretty clear. And that's the point we try to develop in the book. But then we say, okay, we Americans, we love to tell ourselves this story that we're basically peaceful people and we just want to be left alone here in our North American paradise. And if the rest of the world would just stop getting in our way and going into all these wars that we have to go rescue them from, that we would just love to focus on the cowboys and the redskins and, you know, and beautiful Dallas skylines and Washington cherry blossoms and the rest of the world can trade with us and send exchange students. But we basically would just assume not have any more to do with it than we absolutely must. And of course, that's, then we use that story to explain why no members of Congress tend to get passports anymore. And you know the narrative. <laughs> but we, we love to say we Americans, we, we really are not that particularly global in our character. The world has become global. But Americans actually like it here pretty well. And uh, yeah, they'll go off and do a business you know, deal or go off and do some work for a year or two or be a Peace Corps volunteer or whatever. But we basically all want to come home. We love it here. And if the rest of the world would leave us alone, we would appreciate that. But we say in the book, that argument is nonsense. The Americans have never been a peaceful people. And if you'll forgive me for saying it, this is not an insult. This is actually an admiration. Texans know this. Because because Texans Texans know you, you've been at the, a lot of the heart of our you know period of establishing control over North America, and and I'm not claiming innocence from where I come from either, by the way. But, but I think you folks live it and see it and feel it in, in your blood. You, you probably remember the history better than a lot of the rest of us do. You know, on the East Coast, you can sort of say, well, yeah, out that way is a lot of land, and some of it, it took us longer to get than other parts. But you know, we've been here a long time. But you all know the history and remember it of how we spent our first century plus conquering this continent. And then as soon as we finished, and that was no small thing. You know, we started out as a few little colonies along the eastern seaboard. Next thing you know, we're ten times bigger than we started. And, um, and then we toyed with the idea of maybe taking some of Mexico, and then we do go into the Pacific, and we take Hawaii. And you know, I'm, not saying we're, I'm not saying that we are... Um, a colonial power the way the Europeans were, but we are not a docile, passive nation. And now we're telling ourselves this national myth that we're in a mood of isolationism, right? That's the new story, that uh, Obama wants to build uh, this nation and we're all tired of foreign policy and 
And that lasted as long as until about when Putin uh, invaded Crimea. And then we started to realize just how indignant we were about something happening 10,000 miles away that involved 2 million people, not even any of them getting killed, really. I mean, it was a more or less peaceful invasion. It was, it was still heinous. It was still without justification. I'm not defending Putin. But in the scale of global atrocities, this was nothing. But it really bothered us. And we thought there were two basic ideas in our debate. Do we do what Obama's doing? Some fairly strong measures, but limited. Or do we do a lot more? Very few voices were saying, let Putin do what he wants to in Crimea. I just don't really care. There were very few people saying that. We Americans have it in our DNA that we care about the nature of the whole world. And maybe it's become injected into our DNA by uh, 100, 150, 200 years of history. But it's pretty powerfully established. So what this means is we are not going to break our bonds with Japan or Korea or the Philippines, nor should we. Again, I'm not trying to be critical, and the book is not critical of American strategic culture. We're just trying to be open-eyed and to take on this myth that somehow Americans are indifferent to what goes on around the world. We never are indifferent. And our periods of so-called isolationism, they last about six or 12 months. You know, after Vietnam, after Vietnam, we were supposedly tired of all this kind of foreign engagement. It takes us about five years to elect Ronald Reagan. Now, one of the reasons Reagan's so popular in American history is because we did actually stay out of wars during his watch. So I'm not saying Americans enjoy fighting, but we do actually like to feel like we have a lot of influence in a healthy way over the shape of the entire world. So you put these two strategic cultures together, and then you throw in a few uh, friends like Japan that have their own ways of making this interesting, especially in their interactions with China. I'm not blaming the Japanese, but there are some dynamics there beyond our immediate control. And you have a situation where the idea that we should just assume that interdependence and nuclear deterrence will keep us on peaceful terms with China, we do not accept. So that's the basic motivation for the problem that we identify in the book. Okay, what do you do about it? Well, option one, I've already begun to discredit. Let me complete the job, if I could. And you can come back later and tell me if you think I overlooked something or if I've been unfair to option one. But option one is, is basically pull back and basically say, you know, do we really need all these East Asian allies as much as we used to? Do we really have to get in their, you know, in their security dealings uh, with each other? Do we really have to maintain all these alliances? Should we just basically concede that either Taiwan at a minimum, or maybe even some of the other East Asian allies are no longer as crucial to us, and acknowledge that China's going to rise, and it's going to be number one in the Western Pacific, and let's just get on with it and accept it. It's not that bad for us, and if we have to put a few allies, you know, uh, at a greater distance, well, um, you know, sorry, but like the old British diplomat once said, nations don't have permanent friends, only permanent interests, and our number one interest is security here at home and economic uh, prosperity, and maybe we can do that without having a security treaty with the Japanese or the Koreans. Well, I don't like this idea at all. For one thing, I do like the Japanese and the Koreans as nations and as peoples, and I think we have a moral uh, obligation to them. But even beyond that, even beyond that, once you start to selectively eliminate certain alliances that you previously had based on your own convenience, wh why does anybody else in the world think that your alliance with them is any good? And therefore, what stops Saudi Arabia and Turkey and the United Arab Emirates and any other country that feels at jeopardy from getting its own nuclear weapons, possibly launching its own wars of preemption to protect itself before allies or before adversaries can rise up and attack them? In other words, we're back to the law of nature that used to rule the international system when wars were frequent. 
and not like the current world in which wars between states are quite infrequent. So we all want to start pulling out the thread of this international system that works pretty darn well uh, because the cure could be worse than the disease. And, uh, and by the way, the other thing I would uh, mention from history, the last time we thought we could make a very clear strategic choice, there were, there were actually two examples which come to mind quickly, and I'm sure you all could add to this or discuss this in further detail. In 1950, Secretary of State Dean Acheson decided that Korea wasn't really that important to us because if you went around the way George Kennan defined our strategic interests, the most important industrial centers of the world, Korea was sort of secondary. And we had to be parsimonious about where we decided to really defend our interests. We didn't have a huge, we were trying to downsize the military after World War II, not have to stay on a war footing. So Dean Acheson said, let's not worry so much about Korea. And then, of course, the North Koreans attacked South Korea. And then we decided we did care. <laughs> And so it was exactly what you don't want to do. Tell the world you don't care long enough that they actually act on that premise, and then after the fact, try to undo the violence that you've now partially unleashed by your own previous mistaken declaratory posture. And the other thing uh, was April Glaspie in 1990 telling Saddam that we didn't really have an American position on disputes, border issues between the Arab states. And of course, whether Saddam would have attacked and conquered Kuwait or not, we can all debate. And obviously down here in Texas, you got a lot of people who have thought hard about that problem and had very historic roles in that whole set of issues. But the point was um, that kind of rhetoric might have contributed to a sense that if indeed Iraq invaded Kuwait, the Americans were less likely to respond. And then after the fact, we decided, oops, I guess we better respond. And I'm a big fan of President Bush and the way he handled that. But it's still worth reflecting on the fact that we didn't quite know our own mind. At first, we're like, well, you know, we watched Iran and Iraq fight each other for a lot of years. Maybe we don't really care if Iraq invades Kuwait. But the minute it happened, we realized we did care. So it's not so easy to pull back from the world. So option one's bad, I would argue. In fact, not even really worth serious consideration. Option two is more, it's going to be more frequently debated. And I would predict you'll hear echoes and elements of option two in the 2016 presidential race. And option two basically says, let's outcompete the Chinese. Let's get back to the same kind of peace through strength attitude that Reagan used to defeat the Soviets. We did it once. Let's do it again. We're still way ahead of the Chinese in military spending. We got much better allies than the Chinese. We can do it. And actually, between option one and option two, I do prefer option two. And I think there are elements of option two that are feasible. But let's not confuse China with the Soviet Union or Russia. I know we're all reading in our papers today, oh, the Chinese growth rate might only be 7.3%. They might not quite make their 7.5%, uh, which is down from the previous years of 9%. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. <laughs> the, the, the numbers that we're talking about in regard to China, we're not talking about in regard to any other country. China's amazing. It's got big, big problems, but its economic performance is extraordinary. And we are not going to easily outcompete China because in material terms, they're going to be in a good position to give us a pretty good competition. And I think it's pretty clear they will do that before they will capitulate. Because again, they went through that century of humiliation, and they went through that century of shame, and, and many centuries of passivity and withdrawal, and it didn't work out so well for them, and they're not going back. And by the way, even if they could maybe, on a good day, accept a world in which the United States was sort of quasi-permanently ahead of them, because I think Chinese and Americans actually sort of get along and respect each other. The problem is we got all these allies they don't like. 
And the last thing they're going to be willing to do is see an American-Japanese alliance permanently stay way ahead of them. So I just think if we do this and we delude ourselves into thinking we can get the kind of result we got in the 1980s, it's, it's a wrong analogy. I still favor a strong American defense, and I think sequestration cuts too much. I'm in favor of increased defense spending, and I'm actually very encouraged by what I think are the most likely prospects for 2016. Hillary on the Democratic side running against uh, another Bush or Rubio or someone like that on the Republican side. I think we'll get a good serious debate about the need for America to stay strong. And I think both candidates will want America to stay strong and be worried about the sequestration uh, cuts on our defense. So that's all good. But the idea that we can actually just leave China in the dust in military spending is, in my opinion, not going to work. Because leave aside the raw numbers, one last point about option two, the technology trends are helping the country that cares about the waters 100 and 200 miles off its coast. Technology in terms of satellites, in terms of computers, advanced sensors, in terms of homing munitions on missiles, precision strike, all the stuff that we've been watching in war for the last 25 years in this country, all that stuff is going to make it easier for China to threaten ships and U.S. allies in the Western Pacific. And our historical norm, the benchmark that we've been trying to preserve and protect, is our ability to act with impunity in the Western Pacific, right up to within eyesight of the Chinese coast. That's our historical norm, you know, to the point where if you were in this building looking out over a beautiful, you know, if you were this, this equivalent distance, we've been historically able to come within eyesight of China, and we still do it now. And, and be able to expect that we're going to be safe, do what we want to do, protect the Taiwanese, protect the sea lanes, that's going to get harder because of technology trends. We're going to be able to threaten Chinese assets like we always have, but they're increasingly going to be able to threaten ours as well. So the technology trends are problematic. So you can't just leave them in the dust. So option two is appealing. There are elements of sort of a peace through strength approach that we should endorse. But in the end, the idea that you're just going to flat out win the competition and put China back in its place, I don't think is viable. Again, I don't want to totally discredit option two because our option three does build on the notion of a strong American defense and no idea that we should concede parity or equality to China in military terms. You know, we might get there by mid-century, but we shouldn't be in a hurry to get there. And there's nothing desirable about that. But we still have to look for opportunities to keep the competition within check. So let me just give you a couple of thoughts on what I think of as option three, and then look forward to the discussion, try to have plenty of time for that. Option three is this notion that we call strategic reassurance. And it begins from the premise that both sides are going to pursue their core national interests in ways that they have been and that they feel very strongly about. The United States is going to keep protecting all of our friends in the Western Pacific and the waterways. The Chinese are going to keep trying to push out and become the preeminent Asian power. And I wish they weren't or wouldn't, but they will. And the book begins with the premise that they will. It doesn't mean that we are conceding to them the right to call the shots in the Western Pacific, because we still want to stay there with American power as well. But we recognize the reality that the Chinese want to be the preeminent power in East Asia, and they're going to keep doing things to advance that uh, aspiration. So strategic reassurance. The idea there, again, is not to back off from your interests and not to assume that you can build trust. 
Jim tells this story, and you also see it in books like uh, Jeff Bader's book. Jeff Bader was uh, on the National Security Council in the first couple of years of the Obama administration. There was a time where President Obama um, talked about how we should want to create strategic trust with the United States and China. And that's always a nice aspiration. But trust, we argue, is too high of a bar. Trust is unrealistic. Neither one of us is going to trust the other for a darn long time. What you have to do is not expect trust, but try to reassure through actions, not words. Uh, words can help, but actions are more important. And what that means is you look for ways to take an edge off the most potentially destabilizing or escalatory forms of competition, even as you maintain your core strength and your core strategic interests. So that's what strategic reassurance means as a concept. Now let me try to implement it in practice to give you a few examples of, of what it means uh, in reality. Uh, because it's not easy, right? I mean, we're talking about taking the edge off the intense competition. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a few examples. Some of it is sort of small ball, trying to create some better modes of communication, trying to prevent some worst-case scenarios from erupting. So I'll give you a few small arms control examples. Some of this comes out of the arms control tradition. A lot of it does not. A lot of this is about how the U.S. can take its own actions, China can take its own actions, they watch each other, try to get into a, a spiral of a mutually reinforcing cooperative behavior. So we're not always trying to do this through arms control in the formal sense. But there are a couple of arms control treaties that would make sense. One of them, um, very small, simple example, the Open Skies Treaty. Remember that? The U.S., NATO, Russia, Warsaw Pact, Open Skies Treaty. It still is in existence. And in fact, I think we're thinking about using it now to request a flight over Ukraine, which technically the Russians have to let us do. Because this treaty says that if you file a request for a flight in advance and you tell the air traffic controllers of the country where you want to overfly, where you're going, that you're allowed to do a certain number of confidence-building flights per year. So we already have this with Russia and with the whole former Warsaw Pact, and there are about 100 flights a year still being done. We propose having a similar framework with China. The Chinese already are better at stealing our secrets by computer than they're ever going to be able to do by open skies. Because open skies is actually, again, you know the flight profile in advance. So if there was some, you know, <coughs> Hewlett, Packard, Hewlett Packard engineer who wanted to um, take his microchip out on his lunch break and, and, and carelessly reveal the designs to the world, he's not going to do that the day the Chinese are overflying. He's going to know what day that is. And, you know, you see my point. You don't actually give away huge state secrets with this sort of open skies treaty. It's a modest confidence-building step. It doesn't create strategic trust, but it creates, for the Chinese, a little bit less animosity. Because right now they are very angry that we can go up to their shores all the time with our ships and our airplanes and our submarines, and they cannot reciprocate. And they would love it if we would just stop doing this forward reconnaissance of their territory and their military installations. But our response is we can't stop. Because we got allies to protect out here. we got to know what you're doing. And Jim and I agree with that. We are not calling for the U.S. to reduce its forward reconnaissance. But this might be an opportunity where you could say to the Chinese, you know, here's sort of uh, a gesture that maybe makes you feel a little bit better. There's a little more symmetry in this thing. You know, if we can let the Russians overfly the United States once in a while, we can let the Chinese do it too. And they have an airplane, and it has cameras, and it has infrared, and blah, blah, blah. And it can fly over whatever part of the country, and it can go over a military base or uh, um, some kind of a Silicon Valley facility, and that's fine. We, we know how to protect ourselves doing that. So that's one idea. Another idea is incidents at sea. Excuse me. 
incidents at sea. Uh, these ships come in so close they almost collide. And you know that um, this just happened last fall. The Chinese caused most of these problems. They want to push us out, push us away from the areas we've been operating. So they say, um, you know, Americans, get out of the South China Sea. It's ours. And we say, no, it's not. We're staying. And then they bring their ship within, you know, half a kilometer from one of our ships and make us nervous we're going to have a collision. And there's no protocol right now to govern those kinds of interactions. We had one with the Soviets. So this is sort of a no-brainer. We should use a similar kind of protocol with the Chinese. What you have to do with the Chinese, though, you have to generalize it beyond just the navies, because the Chinese will use their Coast Guard and even their fishing fleets for some of this nonsense. So you've probably got to bring in more government agencies and even some private firms. And it, these are simple rules. Like if someone's launching planes off an aircraft carrier, don't get in front of the aircraft carrier. It, it's, it's really not very polite, because then the carrier might have to deviate its course to avoid a collision, at which point the plane trying to come in and land uh, is at risk. So that's the kind of stuff that these incidents at, at sea treaties, or if you're a submarine and you're doing reconnaissance on somebody else's military exercise, well, that's fine. Just don't surface right between their ships. Give them a little bit of space. That's the kind of stuff that's in this uh, kind of an agreement. Very small stuff, but we're not even pursuing this right now. We don't even have a national decision that it would be a good idea. And Jim and I said it, it would be a good idea. One more idea in this same spirit of sort of, you know, small bar arms control agreements. In space right now, as you know, there are very limited treaty um, stipulations. You can't put nuclear weapons in space, and uh, one or two other small things like that you can't do. Pretty much beyond that, the space is the new Wild West. The space zone is the new Wild West. You can do whatever you want. And for the most part, that's probably okay. You know, there's some regulation on how we use geosynchronous orbit because everybody wants to be at that distance. That's the distance 22,000 miles out where, of course, if you're parked over one place on Earth, you, you stay there because your speed of orbit is the same as the speed of the Earth's rotation. So if you're doing direct TV or communications, it's nice to be in geosynchronous. So there are rules on you know, regulating that, on sharing that space. But for the most part, space is mostly unregulated. We suggest a couple of simple treaties that would not do a lot uh, but we do a little bit to, again, prevent some potentially undesirable things. So, for example, um, we do missile defense tests up in space. We usually do them at two or 300, 400 kilometers above the Earth's surface. That's high enough that you're above the atmosphere. We say that's fine, and let's make sure they keep being done in that altitude zone and not much higher. Because if you do them higher than that, you create debris with the explosions and the collisions, which then is a threat to commercial satellites anyway. So nobody has an interest in doing these tests that high up. So why don't we, do it, why don't we codify it before people start doing a lot more military activities up there just to show their manhood or whatever? And, um, and, and so some of this is just very small stuff. But we do look for opportunities to have arms control of the classic mutual formal variety. But then we also have a couple other categories of ideas. And let me just give you one example from each. And actually, I'm going to be very quick because I'm already about at the end of where I should be with my time. Um, on, on military planning, let me just tee this issue up, and you might want to come back to it in discussion, but I'll just let you know where we go in the book in brief. Uh, in Korea, as you know, the United States still has a military commitment, and we should, and we endorse that. The Chinese technically still have a military commitment to North Korea. It's their only ally. 
It's pretty mind-boggling. I don't think the Chinese enjoy the fact that North Korea is their only ally, but they also sort of feel stuck by this. And you know, it's, North Korea is like the bad child on the side, the, the really bad child. And um, and you just sort of hope that if you put them in a padded room and don't pay too much attention, that it'll be okay. And um, and that's sort of the Chinese attitude towards the North Koreans. And we say no. This this kid needs some discipline, and, and they say no. If you if you go into that room and try to discipline him, he's going to like bite your hand, and he's going to do all sorts of crazy stuff. Better to just sort of leave him alone as much as you can. That's sort of been the debate, and what we're saying is okay. Um, there's a lot of debates of what to do with North Korea in terms of sanctions and in terms of their nuclear program, but let's also think ahead to what would happen in the event of a war. And I don't think there's likely to be a war. But if there were, it could be a very terrible thing. It would be a very great risk to Seoul and all of our um, South Korean friends and their territory to the American forces in Korea. And it would also be a risk for another inadvertent U.S.-China conflict. Because if there is a war, I don't think the Chinese are just going to watch. They're going to come in too. They're not going to come in to fight for North Korea, per se, because they know that would be pointless. They're going to come in, in my opinion, to carve out a little bit of a buffer zone they're going to say they're doing it to take care of North Korean refugees and help us find the nuclear weapons before they escape. That'll be the Chinese official position, and it'll be partly true. But the other reason they'll want to come in is they'll want to have the ability to use that leverage to persuade us to leave Korea after the war's over. And they'll want to say, we'll leave as soon as you leave. And let's demilitarize the whole peninsula and let Koreans be for just Koreans. And Jim and I said, well, you know what? Um, it's a, that's a possible outcome, but more likely than not, after this war, the South Koreans are actually, who are now ruling the whole peninsula in all likelihood, uh, they're probably going to want us to stay. And if they don't, we can live with that too. But we can live with a world in which the Chinese and the Americans are both occupying small parts of Korea, and then, the, and then Seoul gets to decide who stays. And in the meantime, thinking about how to collaborate on this contingency and ask the Chinese for help. Don't just expect them to come in, but actually ask them to come in and take care of that northern part of North Korea. It would prevent the risk of an inadvertent war between China and the U.S. or South Korea, and it would also potentially help us in the mission. So I'm just sort of teeing up this proposal. There's obviously a lot more that has to be discussed before I could hope to convince you, um, and we do spend a fair amount of time on it in the book. But we see it as an opportunity not just to worry about this possible war that hopefully and probably will never happen, but even now in the short term to build up some working relationships, some cooperative behavior with the Chinese military as we think ahead to what would happen in this scenario if it ever were to unfold. And just prospectively thinking about it and talking about it could be helpful to the relationship between the U.S. and China. I'll just finish on one last point. Um, on this one, uh, you know, we try in the book to be even-handed in a sense, as much as two Americans can realistically aspire to be. But I'll, I'll still finish with one where we actually have a big ask of the Chinese. And it's not really a very precise argument. We can't really quantify it. But as you know, and as was alluded to earlier by Mel, the Chinese economy is growing leaps and bounds. It is now the second biggest in the world. The Chinese military budget is also the second biggest in the world. It's estimated, if you you know if you convert appropriately, it's somewhere between 150 billion and 200 billion a year U.S. dollars. Our budget is still around 600 billion, but it's coming down fast. And so we could envision a point by the end of this decade where we're down to 500 billion or so a year, and the Chinese are up to 250, 275 billion. And what we say to the Chinese is, when you get to the point where you're, half as, you're spending half as much as we are, we don't expect you to accept that. That would be a little bit of an unrealistic request by two Americans claiming to write a balanced book. 
that Chinese can buy into to actually just ask you to freeze your spending level so you're permanently relegated to number two. We don't expect that, but you might think about slowing down the rate of your buildup because the rate of your buildup is causing angst, uh, even if in your mind it's justifiable and even if it's only 2% of your GDP. We're spending a higher percent of our GDP on our military than they are on their military. We have a GDP that's twice as big, and we're spending 3% plus on our uh, military. They're only spending 2%. So in their mind, they're not hyper-militarizing. But of course, the rest of the world is watching them increase their military budget by $10 billion a year. And what we say to the Chinese is, you might just think about slowing down the pace of the increase. And there are some things we can do, too, on our military modernization, and I can talk about that in the discussion if you wish. I won't burden you with that right now. We, there are a few things we can do that are of a totally different kind of nature to show some restraint on our part. But you might want to think, because this international system benefits you, you might want to think about slowing down the rate of increase once you get to roughly that point. And the reason why the halfway marker is significant is because we Americans, for better or for worse, are still basically protecting your oil in the Persian Gulf. And so we've got two parts of the world we have to worry about. You've only got really one main part of the world you have to worry about in military terms. You may not like the fact that we could implicitly cut off your oil supply, <laughs> and so the Chinese can't be expected to forever appreciate that we're protecting their oil, because the flip side of protecting their oil is being able not to protect their oil <laughs> and being able to cut it off in a crisis if we decide we don't like what they're doing. So over the long term, I don't expect the Chinese will be forever happy about this, but in the short term, they benefit extraordinarily. They need Persian Gulf oil more than we do, as you great Texans know better than uh, a Washingtonian. And so, you know, they should recognize there's actually some benefit to this existing order and be willing to see it evolve more gradually as they get to that halfway point. Now, I've made this argument to some American four-star uh, admirals who don't find it totally believable that the Chinese would ever buy in. Um, some of them do, some of them don't. So I don't necessarily claim that it's going to be an easy sell. But again, the book has some ideas also that are tougher on us than they are on the Chinese. Happy to get into that or anything else you want to discuss in the uh, discussion period. Thanks very much for your attention. Fantastic. Isn't it terrible that we have to run out of time? Uh, we're going to do the Q&A now. Those who have been here before know how we do it. To save time, we're going to take three questions at a time. And no editorializing, please, so the speaker will have the maximum amount of time to answer it. So we're starting here a little bit late. We have two high school groups here with us, and we always take the first question from among the high school groups who have given to us on a, uh, individuals on index cards. The first one is from Josephine McReynolds Mc, uh, of Flower Mound. Due to Jim... ZP's anti-corruption campaign, Chinese officials have been mysteriously committing suicide. What does this mean for the Communist Party? Okay, now second question. Uh, going over there. Wait, wait till she comes with the microphone. I'm wondering about intellectual property and if you think we're making any progress on that front and if you have any thoughts or recommendations about how to Forward those interests. Okay. Uh, next question uh, back, um, back there. Thank you. On the uh, continuum of capitalism over here and communism, where is China? <laughs> Thank you for those great questions. Uh, 
I would say China um, economically is four-fifths capitalist. And the remaining one-fifth, I don't even know what to describe it as. It's not really communist. It's state control or state-led. And um, now politically, there are elements of communism that survive. But economically, I'm not sure I see a whole lot of it. If, if, maybe even if my percentages aren't exactly right, it's more like maybe 60 capitalist, 20 state-run, and 20 communist. That's just a very rough intuitive sense from a non-economist. So you probably should pose that question to someone better uh, capable uh, in the future. And the same caveat, ma'am, for your question, that I wouldn't claim to be a top expert on this, but what we decided in the book was that intellectual property right violations, which I think do continue, and I think are still very serious, I think should perhaps be brought into the broader economic relationship. And we should think about economic retribution but not security retribution. Now, at some level, this is one more reason we're not going to trust the Chinese for decades. They still haven't quite accepted playing by the rules in a number of ways that we think are important. And so there is obviously that linkage between the economic world and the security world. And the economic violations you talk about are one of the reasons why I don't think the security partnership can really be like an alliance for many, many decades. But I don't think we have to reciprocate or retaliate with military means against IPR theft, I think what we should do is think about trade sanctions. And, and that may mean that we, you know, we harm ourselves in, in the sense of reducing uh, certain kinds of, I'm not talking about massive tariffs, but I'm talking about, you know, playing hardball with 10% and 20% tariffs in cases where we can't make headway. But again, please ask a, a better skilled um, economist before uh, taking my advice too far, but that's that's my take. And, and the main point for the book is we really felt that those kind of issues are very serious, but that they don't require a security response. There are economic tools that we have to reciprocate or to retaliate as necessary. And then finally on the suicides, I guess I don't have a whole lot to add here. Um, you know, the Chinese have been caught, some Chinese, not most, some have been caught doing some pretty bad things. And um, obviously there are cultures in the world where sometimes when you're caught doing bad things uh, at a very high visibility political level, suicide is seen as an option. Obviously, we Americans are afflicted uh, by the tragedy of suicide in other ways. It doesn't tend to afflict the top tier of our political leadership, but it does in, in, in East Asia. <laughs> um, and, and so President No, Pe President No of South Korea killed himself several years ago. I mean, it's amazing to think that a former head of government, former head of state, would commit suicide. Uh, but he did. And so I think there are, this is one of those things where I'm not trying to say, you know, suicide is somehow more acceptable in, the, in East Asia. But, you know, and I just made that point that we have a lot of suicide. You all know that. We all have seen that. Most of us have, have suffered that tragically in our lives by people we know who have, um, who have taken their own lives. But it doesn't tend to be uh, a way out of a political scandal in the U.S., uh, in, in, you might ask, you might almost turn the question around, why don't our politicians sometimes commit suicide? <laughs> I, I won't push that one any further. Uh, <laughs> I like our politicians. But, um, but no, it's a, very, it's a very good question. But I think for the most part in China, you actually see um, a political system that has some sharp elbows, and there are some bureaucratic tensions across different domains. But I think China's been impressive in that at the end of the day, there is some pretty strong unified leadership on most of the big issues, which is part of why they've done so well as a country. They have been able to lock their arms together. All right. Our next round of questions, before I, let, uh, before I open that, let me remind everybody, if, you hadn't, if it hasn't occurred to you already, that if 
we don't need to restrict these questions to China. Uh, he ha uh, our speaker has an enormous experience in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in other parts of the world. So this is a, as I said in the introduction, he is a one-stop shop for just almost every trouble spot. So uh, let me start with a, a question from the uh, high school group. This is from Miles Dean, 11th grade, L.D. Bell High School. I've read a news article that explains how China has begun attempting to genetically engineer superior children. As this is not morally acceptable in the U.S., to what extent would Chinese and American relations be affected if China succeeds? Okay, now, number, second question. Um, right here, right here. By now, we have a number of very, very uh, qualified and exceptional Chinese Americans. Are they helpful in any of your work? That's the third question. Um, lady right back there. What is the contrast between the understanding of the need for better communications and a new stabilization between the military in both countries versus the government in both countries? Excellent questions. Thank you. Um, genetic engineering. Well, since I came from a high school student, I'm tempted to punt and just say, our generation is going to just be able to just barely escape that question. You're going to have to do it and deal with it. So um, I did not genetically engineer my kids. I was tempted. I'm still tempted. You know, but but um, probably because I know where the genes came from and it's not all pretty. Uh, but I, I don't think the Chinese have really gotten into this lock, stock, and barrel yet themselves. Uh, but bioengineering is going to be one of the hardest sets of public policy challenges and personal medical challenges for everybody coming of age. So, again, I, I guess I'm going to finish with, a, with an attempt at a serious version of my earlier joke, which is it really is going to be a bigger problem for you all than it is at the moment. I don't think this is a major problem right now. Uh, the, the bigger problem we had, of course, with the Chinese in terms of children was their one-child policy and, and uh, forced sterilization, and then some of the cultural tendencies that led them to have a lot of... Um, of selective abortions of, of girls, and uh, those kinds of issues were particularly acute in the 80s and 90s when they were really enforcing their one-child policy. There's still ongoing concerns about that, but I think that's a bigger set of challenges today than the genetic modification. That may change, though, so I accept the, where your question's headed. I just don't think it's really the main worry at the moment. On, um, on Chinese Americans, that's a great question. I, I, uh, I'm sort of racking my brain to think of, of the various interactions I've had. But the best example I could give is that I've, I was in Changsha, China, which is near Mao's birthplace, uh, last fall at a military academy, very hospitable um, uh, meeting. I gave a version of this same talk. I told them some of the things we thought Chinese should do differently, as well as some of the things I thought Americans might do differently. And uh, at one point, I surveyed the crowd, and I said, how many of you expect a bad U.S.-China relationship in your lifetime? This was a military academy, and only three people raised their hand. And then I'm thinking, well, they're just, they're all, like, you know, doodling or something or falling asleep. So I'll, I'll, let me, just to make sure they're actually voting, I'll ask, how many of you expect U.S.-China relations to be good? And half the room raised its hand. So this was among military. And... Um, it left me hopeful. Maybe they're just telling the barbarian visitor what he wanted to hear. But, um, but they also, you know, they, General Chong just told Secretary Hagel something that Hagel didn't want to hear the other day when they basically said, we're not going to be pushed around by anybody in this region and don't tell us to just get back into our place as, um, you know, the way we used to be. 
So I think the Chinese are capable of being um, honest with Americans when they want to be. And I actually interpreted their question, or their response to my question, to be hopeful that I think Chinese actually respect and admire the United States, and I think it's mutual. And uh, and so I'm still fundamentally optimistic, probably more optimistic than my co-author. The only fundamental point we might disagree on is that I still think the overall there are more positive forces than negative in the U.S.-China relationship, and he may not be quite so sure. But either way, we're both worried enough to have written the book and to have offered all, all the other uh, ideas along the way. And um, please remind me on the on the last question. What was the just the the, the main topic? Yes. Yeah. Great question. Well, I'll give you a very concrete answer, which is that the military-to-military communication among uniformed personnel is underdeveloped because the Chinese have been resistant. So the Korea idea that I just talked to you about a minute ago, the Chinese resist that. And the incidents at sea agreement that I mentioned, both sides resist that, but the Chinese probably more so. And so um, I think we're going to have to ease into it. And one of the ways you ease into it is that you have conferences with retired military. So if the, if the official uh, current military leaders won't always have these conversations. Um, but the, there is some going on. I, I, um, I had a, an opportunity to talk to Admiral Greener, the chief of naval operations, and he explained to me about a visit by his counterpart in the Chinese Navy last fall to visit various ships, you know, based in California. So there's that kind of thing going on, and um, and I think it should continue. But in terms, what I'm most worried about is hotlines for crisis management, and then communications channels for difficult discussions about problem scenarios like Korea. So the visits to each other's ships, those are nice. They build personal relationships. At least you know who to call if there's a problem on your cell phone. But there really aren't the military hotlines or mechanisms that are as well established as they were with the Soviets. And that's one more, one more thing we recommend changing. Unfortunately, we've been trying to change that, and the Chinese have been resistant. So I think you probably have to work with their retired military uh, in the short term more than their active military on some of this stuff. How about government to government stuff? Well, that's, you know, I mean... It could go on a great length about that. I think it, it varies on the question. I think um, the Chinese premier came and spent a couple of days with President Obama last year uh, in, in Sunnyvale. And I think there are a lot of things that are positive, but the trade relations are less happy. Um, so I just wanted to focus on the military piece for keeping my question short, my answer short. Uh, just before we adjourn, Jim wants to make a presentation. Thank you very much. One-stop shop, that's the way they end the IPS series. Thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. Very there kind you go. Of Thank you all. And, and Roy. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.